Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 316, Review of Papandrea, Trinity 101, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Dr. James Papandrea is described by his Wikipedia page as a Catholic theologian, historian, author, speaker, and singer-songwriter. Although he's Roman Catholic, he teaches at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary in Illinois, which is a United Methodist institution. And by the way, you shouldn't assume that there is one Catholic approach to the Trinity or one Reformed approach to the Trinity. Scholars actually differ quite a bit among themselves, as this series on introductory Trinity books will make clear. A Protestant reader might pick up this book and not realize that it's Roman Catholic unless he or she figures out that the in-text references to capital CCC mean the Catechism of the Catholic Church. The book is short and simply written. I thought maybe in some places it was oversimplified, and it bothered me a little bit that there were no references in the text other than Scripture and the Catholic Catechism. So he might be making very controversial points about early church fathers, including his favorite Novation of Rome, but you're not able to check up in the primary sources. But, you know, I guess it's a beginner's book. There's a short list of recommended books at the end, although there is no index. Despite the fact that it's short and simply written, it's a far more scholarly book than we looked at last week, and it answers way more questions. But that doesn't mean the answers are true. At the end of this episode, I'm going to score it as to how many of my 10 basic or fundamental questions about the Trinity it gives clear answers to. But before we do that, I wanted to talk about a couple of interesting and unique features of this book. One thing that really surprised me, and he doesn't say this just once, he says it clearly over and over again, is that according to Jesus, as portrayed in the Gospels, according to his teaching, the one God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, just is the one that he refers to as Father. In other words, Jesus teaches the numerical identity of the one God with the Father. (laughs) Well, okay, but if you're a Trinitarian and you want the doctrine of the Trinity to be consistent with the Bible, then game over. Because on any account of the Trinity, the one God is going to be numerically identical to the Trinity. So if there's such thing as the Trinity, it can't be numerically identical to the Father, the Trinity would be tripersonal and the Father would not be tripersonal. So it just has to be false that those are one and the same. Okay, but if the one God just is the Father, then it follows, since the Father is numerically distinct from the Trinity, it follows that it's false that the one God just is the Trinity. So as soon as you admit that Jesus teaches that the one God just is the Father alone, You now have to make a choice between the theology of Jesus and later orthodoxy, which identifies the one God with the three of them all together. For more on this, you can check out the carefully rendered argument in Trinity's podcast 248 called How Trinity Theories Conflict with the Bible. 
Another thing that's distinctive about the book is that the author assumes the truth of what philosophers have recently started calling classical theism. I don't really like that name. That makes it sound like, you know, an obvious default or something. What many call classical theism, I would call incoherent quasi-Platonic theism. And it's committed to doctrines like divine simplicity, divine immutability, and divine impassibility, and usually divine timelessness as well. He also mentions incorruptibility. I think probably all monotheists believe in divine incorruptibility, that God just in principle is not subject to like disease or injury or death. Immutability and timelessness tend to go together, but the God of the Bible seems to act in time and be influenced by events that happen in time. That would conflict with immutability and impassibility. Divine simplicity, very briefly, is the idea that not only does God not have parts, but there aren't any kind of objective inner distinctions within God. You can't even distinguish, for instance, God from his property of wisdom. God just is his wisdom proponents of divine simplicity say. You can't distinguish God's wisdom from his goodness. No, they're the same with each other, and they're also the same with God. Now, a lot of contemporary Christian philosophers think that this is just straight-up incoherent, and that it has other problematic implications for what God can and can't do. If you want to look more into this issue of so-called classical theism, I'm going to put a couple links for the Reluctant Theologian podcast on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org, where you can hear a couple of really excellent Christian philosophers discussing why they don't accept classical theism. He also accepts the doctrine of inseparable operations, that with regard to the creation, whatever any member of the Trinity does, the other members are also doing. I've never understood how one could think this is plausible with respect to the New Testament picture, say, of God and Jesus. Another thing that's distinctive of the book is a unique narrative about the early history of Christian theology. This is something I would love to debate Dr. Papandrea on in some way, because I think this is a just-so story, a pleasing and simple, entertaining account that doesn't actually fit what we know about people like Justin Martyr, Tertullian, Origen, and yes, even Novation. But let me see if I can fairly summarize this narrative. The story is that Christians always worshipped Jesus. And this is indisputable, I think. But how can this be if one can only worship God? Dr. Papandrea writes, The problem was that they, early Christians, didn't quite know how to explain worship of Jesus within the context of a monotheistic religion. In other words, How do you justify the worship of Jesus and still claim to believe in only one God? That is the problem of Christian monotheism. Skipping a bit, the solution to this problem is what we call the doctrine of the Trinity. So there was this problem about worship, the problem needed a solution, and thank God the solution was given. It was the doctrine of the Trinity. So he writes, The first task of Christian theology then was to redefine monotheism to include Jesus. And here's where I have to start to disagree. But in my view, we ought to distinguish between monotheism and monolatry. Monotheism is there's exactly one God, and monolatry is that there is only one who we should worship. Now, these are not the same claim. And you might be a polytheist and think that people in your country or caste or whatever should only worship one. You could be a polytheist and a monolater. On the other hand, you could be a monotheist and think that there is someone 
who you should worship in addition to God. And as a matter of fact, that's just what you see in the New Testament. There's an implicit justification there for the worship of Jesus, and that is that God has raised him to his own right hand. That was understood to entail that you should worship Jesus, not worship him as God, but worship him to the glory of God, as Paul says in Philippians 2. For more on this topic, check out Trinity's podcast 227, Who Should Christians Worship, and podcast 164 on Counting Gods. Now about redefining monotheism to include Jesus, this is absolutely not something we see in the second and third Christian centuries in the historical sources, as long as we're not counting the modalistic monarchians. So people like Justin, Origen, Tertullian, yes, even Novation, When monotheism is the issue, they don't say, oh, well, you see, the thing is there aren't two gods because Jesus is the same God as the Father, or maybe both of them are in the one God or something like that. What they do on the topic of monotheism is they emphasize the uniqueness of the Father, and they argue that there's only one God in that sense, that the Father is God. The Son and the Spirit are not God in that sense. For Novation's version of this, you can see chapters 30 and 31 of his work on the Trinity, and I'll post a link to a free 20th century translation of that on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. So this redefining monotheism to include Jesus just didn't happen until we have this idea of God as tripersonal, which comes in really not much before that 381 council, the Second Ecumenical Council. Okay, but according to his story, he writes, and I take it he is talking about uh, late 100s on into the 200s, he writes, The majority of bishops implicitly agreed that monotheism itself had to be redescribed in a way that would include the divinity of Christ. I don't think that's true. What is true is that in that exact time, people like the Logos theorists were saying that Christ was human and divine. And he was only human, starting presumably with his existence as a fetus within his human mother. Uh, So initially he was only divine, and then he comes to be divine and human. What does that mean? Well, there were different theories afoot there. On those, you can check out my lecture, Clarifying Catholic Christologies. Again, there's a link on the blog post. But the way his story goes is that orthodoxy was always balanced, you know, the middle in between extremes. So he characterizes saying that Jesus is God only or human only. He calls those extremes. Then the in the middle, happily balanced, not too hot, not too cold, is that he's both of those things. So to call it balance kind of ignores questions of coherence. Right on the face of it, nothing could be human and divine, because it would be created and uncreated, it would be eternal and not eternal, it would be temptable and not temptable, essentially immortal and not essentially all-knowing and not essentially all-knowing, etc. Okay, but anyway, the story is that the mainstream was so you know nicely balanced and not extreme, but then these extreme heretics would come along and just choose one or the other. And so one would be people he calls adoptionists. Other historians call these dynamic monarchians. They include Jewish Christian groups like the Ebionites, but are not necessarily confined to those. And they think that Jesus was just a man who behaved very well, and so God adopted him as his son, presumably at the point of his baptism. 
On the other side, people who just think Jesus is only divine and not human are modalists or modalistic monarchians. According to these, he writes, Jesus could not really be a human since, quote, Jesus was nothing more than another name for the Father. For the modalists, the Father and Son are not only one, they are one and the same. In other words, they're the same self and they're just, you know, numerically identical. Okay, so orthodoxy is this wonderful middle way. Well, my problem with this story is he's crucially left out a major fact in the second century, and that is that Logos theories were new and they were widely controversial. They start with Justin Martyr and they go on from there. And Logos theorists themselves, like Justin, Origen, and Tertullian, they tell us that a lot of people objected to Logos theory as involving two creators and two gods. And so these naughty monarchians, whether they're dynamic monarchians or modalistic monarchians, those arose precisely as a reaction against Logos theories. Okay, but he doesn't want to talk in this book about Logos theories, much less mention the fact that they considered the Son and Father to be two different gods, although the Father only is the one true God, God in the highest sense. So in my view, there are historical problems here. And this is something I would love to argue about at much greater length, digging into all the details of all these authors. But I think for this podcast, I'm going to have to move on. When the Trinity's podcast returns, what does this book say about the 10 fundamental questions about the doctrine of the Trinity? In the previous episode, we spent a lot of time agonizing about what do these authors think the doctrine of the Trinity actually is. Don't just repeat the language for us, actually tell us what it means. And in many cases, when a Trinitarian does this, many but not all, it will turn out that the persons are something less than selves, so there's really one he, one him, one self in the Trinity, despite the three persons. On the other hand, other Trinitarians think, no, there really are three selves there. It's an eternal dance of perfect love between three equal friends, basically. What I called last time the myth of the three eternal perfect amigos. So what does Dr. Papandrea think that the Trinity amounts to? Well, he does say some things that would make you think that he thinks it's in fact oneself. So towards the end of one chapter, he writes, We must be careful to be clear that in reality, it is the Trinity who created the universe, inspired the prophets and apostles, and who reaches out to humanity in reconciliation. Okay, so it sounds like the Trinity is a who. Who is a personal pronoun. In human languages, that's a main way that we indicate the assumption that what we're talking about is a self. But you have to keep going in this book and look at it as a whole if you want to really understand what the author thinks. And later in the book, he basically says that all analogies that people give for the Trinity are inadequate. Maybe some are better than others, but there really isn't a good analogy that you can give for how to understand the Trinity. 
And one of those analogies is of one person described in three different ways. You know, so one guy might be a pastor, a husband, and a father, something like that. He writes, The flaw in all personal analogies is that since it is only one person, there will never be enough distinction between the three perceptions of that person to demonstrate the balance of unity and distinction in the Trinity. Okay, so if one self analogies are not adequate to the Trinity, then also the Trinity is not literally going to be one self. Okay, so no, he doesn't think it's literally just one self. Some things he writes makes you think that he thinks there are three selves there. So on page 92, he says, Orthodoxy affirms that the Father and Son are one, John 10.30, but not one and the same, John 14.28. Jesus is God, but not the Father. And when he says not one and the same, what he means, I think, is that they're not numerically identical. Okay, well, if each one on the face of it is a self, they do things that only selves can do, and they're not identical. If they're not numerically the same thing, then they can't be numerically the same self. And so it looks like the Father and Son will be two different selves, and presumably, or in the Holy Spirit, it looks like you would have three selves. So is he, at the end of the day, a three-self Trinitarian? I say no. He writes in his discussion about how all analogies are bad analogies, that any social analogy is going to be lacking in unity, because it assumes three completely separate people. I'm not sure what he means by completely separate. And strangely, he thinks that the best social analogy for the Trinity is that of the family, like a father, mother, and child. But he says, this analogy still lacks unity because they are three different people. Right. So I don't think he's a one-self Trinitarian or a three-self Trinitarian. Well, does he have an interpretation, or is he going to be one of these guys who just tells us the language and says that's all he can do? Sorry. As I've read the whole book and mulled over it, I think the key to understanding his view is this passage on pages 128 and 129. He writes, the problem is that no analogy from the created world can successfully exemplify both the oneness and the threeness all at the same time. A thing is either one thing with three parts, or three things that have some common relationship, but nothing that we can observe is truly always both one and three at the same time. Let me try to unpack this and its implications. When he says a thing is either one thing with three parts or three things that have some common relationship, I take it he means like you got three somethings and they either do or don't compose a whole. If those three somethings compose a whole, then they will be three proper parts of that whole. If they don't compose a whole, then you just have three things. Maybe they're related in some other way. Maybe they're very similar, maybe they're near to each other, maybe they function in a certain way, you know, like three friends cooperate or something. So his idea is that if three things compose a whole, then in a sense you really have one thing there. Well, you can have one thing, the whole, and three things, the parts. Um, but if three things don't compose the whole, then you just have three things there. And what he says is that in the Trinity, what you have is something which is truly always both one and three at the same time. One and three what? Presumably one thing and three things. 
So if there are three things here, then the Father and Son would be numerically distinct, the Son and the Spirit would be numerically distinct, and the Father and the Spirit would be numerically distinct. And if you really have one thing here, then all of those three things I just said would be false. It looks like the one just would be the other, especially if you throw in divine simplicity. So it looks like the doctrine of the Trinity is understood at the end of the day to be seemingly incoherent. Now, does he think there's an actual contradiction here, or only that there's a merely apparent one? I'm going to charitably guess that he thinks it's only apparent, although he doesn't quite say that. But a couple of times he refers to the Trinity as a paradox, and one meaning of paradox is a set of claims that seem to be incoherent. They seem to imply a contradiction, but in fact they don't. Since he thinks the doctrine of the Trinity is true, and he probably assumes, like most people, that you can't have true contradictions, my interpretation is that he thinks the best we can do to literally express the doctrine of the Trinity is that God is three things and only one thing. And he's definitely not saying that there are three parts of one whole because of that doctrine of divine simplicity that we mentioned before, which is part of the baggage of so-called classical theism. If there can't be any objective distinctions in the one God, then how can there be three things here? It just seems to be straight up incoherent. This looks like it implies that God is and isn't only one thing, and that God is and isn't three things. How do you block those contradictions from following? I don't know. But I'm going to interpret him not as an incoherentist who thinks that the doctrine of the Trinity involves a real contradiction, but rather as a positive mysterian. Someone who thinks that, at the end of the day, with all the careful thinking we can do, there's an apparent incoherence here, and there's nothing we can do to resolve it. We're just stuck, basically, thinking inconsistently about God. All right, well, that's an answer to the question, what is the doctrine of the Trinity? And even though it comes deep into the book, it's fairly clear, so I'm going to give him credit for a clear answer to that question. One unique little thing about this book that I think reinforces my interpretation that the Trinity involves apparent incoherence is his surprising claim that it's not a good idea to teach children the doctrine of the Trinity. He writes on page 135, One must also keep in mind that children are not yet able to do abstract reasoning, and therefore it is very difficult for anyone under the age of about 12 or 13 to understand any analogies let alone those which try to describe the Trinity. When it comes to teaching children, it is advisable to stay away from analogies and metaphors and stick with the few things they will need to participate in liturgy, such as saying the creed and crossing themselves. They can be promised that they will grow in understanding as they get older. So, I guess you just teach kids to parrot the language without knowing what it means. Clearly, kids can understand analogies and metaphors, but maybe his point is they can't understand how all of them are inadequate. And maybe part of what he's thinking is that kids assume that things, the description of which involves a contradiction, can't be real. And so if you foist this apparent contradiction on kids, they're going to think, oh, this is, this is a fairy tale, this is nonsense. Go up to any kid, say a seven-year-old, and say, have you met my uncle? And the kid says no. You say, well, my uncle is, and at the same time, isn't six feet tall. The kid will probably think you're joking. 
Now, maybe if the kid is clever, he'll infer that, well, you must mean that he's six foot in one way, but not another. But suppose you clarify, no, I mean six feet tall and also not six feet tall in the same respect, in the same way, at the same time. The kid will be like, nah, you, you don't have an uncle like that. Or we say, have you met my brother? He's very unique. He's not like other brothers because he, at the same time, exists and doesn't exist. Even a kid knows that you don't have a brother like that. Second fundamental question is, why is this doctrine not, as some allege, tritheism? And I think Dr. Papandrea gives a pretty clear answer. He doesn't always use precise metaphysical language, but I still think this is his answer. It's that between the three persons, there is one individual property of divinity, not a universal property, a property that could be shared and had by many things, such as the idea that there's a universal of humanity that's in him and me and you. No, we're talking about something analogous to, you know, Dale's humanity or Dr. Papandrea's humanity. And such a thing as that, an individual property of humanity couldn't be shared by more than one thing. Okay, well then, one would think that different gods couldn't share one individual property of divinity, and so that's why the three persons of the Trinity are not three gods. Because they're sharing an individual property of divinity logically implies that they're one god. Now the problem with this answer, philosophically, is it seems to also force the numerical identity of the three. An individual property is often or maybe ordinarily understood as one which is in principle not shareable. And so only one and the same thing can have it. You can't have different things that share it. Now he emphasizes throughout the book the non-numerical identity of the Father and Son and of each of those with the Spirit. Yeah, it looks like an impossibility that three different things could have one in the same token or one in the same individual property of any sort, divinity or anything else, well, this would be just another way in which the Trinity involves an apparent contradiction. But at any rate, I think he gives a clear answer to this question. The answer is it's not tritheism because the three of them share an individual property of divinity. And in my view, that would imply that there's only one God there. In fact, that there's only one thing there. And that sounds like a terrible problem, but as we just heard, it looks like he's already committed to the numerical identity of the three persons of the Trinity, that the one just is the other, because the Trinity really is one thing. And yet he's also committed to the numerical difference, to the numerical distinctness of the three, because God is three things. The third fundamental question is, why is this doctrine not, as some allege, incoherent? And I think this question doesn't apply to this book, because I think what his clearly implied view is, is that it does seem to be at least an apparent contradiction, and it can't be shown that it's coherent. So this is not an answerable question according to this Trinity theory. So I'm counting this question, why is this doctrine not, as some allege, incoherent, as not applicable? Fourth question, is this doctrine consistent with the common conception of God as a mighty, unique, and completely perfect self? 
I think he clearly and implicitly answers this. The answer is no, or at least those things don't seem to be consistent, because what is truly three things can't be a single self. Whatever is a single self is thereby a single thing. But this God, as we just heard, is three things. So I think his answer to this is no, or it seems not. That's clear enough, I guess. Question five. When, if ever, did God reveal this doctrine? He's a little slippery on this, as we'll discuss in a moment when the question of the Bible comes up. Still, I think at the end of the day, his answer's pretty clear, and it would be God only fully revealed this doctrine at the year 381, when the first ecumenical creed assumes or implies that God is three equally divine persons who share one divine essence. But I think he would add that it was not fully revealed, but maybe substantially revealed, at least by the time of novation in, say, the mid-200s. I disagree with that second part, but still, I think he gives a pretty clear answer. And of course, if this is right, then it would be neither fully nor substantially revealed in the time of the New Testament writings. Which is, I agree, true. When the Trinity's podcast returns, is there a doctrine of a triune God in the Bible? Questions six and seven are such that I think an author really only has to answer one of them, depending on what their view of the Trinity is. Six says, if this doctrine is in the Bible, how can one see this? Seven is, if this doctrine is not in the Bible, why should Bible-oriented Protestants accept it? Now, the reader is going to be fairly confused about which side Dr. Papandrea takes here, and he hedges his bets a little bit. And yet still, I think his answer at the end of the day, if you read hard enough, is clear enough. When you look in the table of contents for this book, you see that chapter one is entitled The Trinity in Scripture. And then he spends about 60 pages telling you all about this theme of the Trinity in Scripture. So on the face of it, a reader is going to assume that he says the doctrine, yes, is in the Bible, and here's how you can see it. I'm going to show you. But in this episode of the Trinity's podcast, in this review, I'm going to skip all of what he says about, you know, the fourth gospel and the writings of Paul, etc., because his actual answer is this, which is on page 60. At this stage, the church's understanding of the Trinity is only developed insofar as it relates to what can be gleaned from some of the teachings of Jesus and the writings of the apostles. In some cases, I have looked ahead to the ways in which these biblical texts would be interpreted by the church. At the end of the day, we have to admit that while we may be able to see the Trinity in the text of Scripture, the doctrine of the Trinity is not in Scripture per se, but is the result of the church's interpretation of Scripture. Now, I think what he means by seeing the Trinity in Scripture is that 
just it features the father, the son, and the spirit. Those are, he thinks, characters, protagonists in these writings. But right, that doesn't tell you that they're the same God or persons within the same God or that they're equally divine or that they share an essence and things like that. Not to mention the traditional doctrines of eternal generation and procession. So interpreting him charitably, I think that's what he means when he says you observe the Trinity there. And some Catholic scholars, for instance, the famous theologian Hans Kung, see the blog post for this episode at trinities.org for a link to a very interesting blog post with a quote from him precisely about what New Testament theology is. Some Catholic scholars would just say, look, the New Testament isn't Trinitarian. The idea of a tripersonal God is from a later age, and that's just how it is. Now, that's okay because our main authority is not Scripture but the Church, And the church does teach this later, so we don't need to say these New Testament books already taught it in any sense. Dr. Papandrea is not that clear about it. He writes on page 17 that these apostles understood God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And on page 10, ultimately the doctrine of the Trinity comes from Scripture. However, it is not spelled out in the apostolic documents as clearly as we might like it to be. And then he mentions that Christian doctrine developed over time. Right, if it's not as clearly spelled out as we would like it to be, yeah, but that's consistent with its actually being there, like part of the content of these books, implicitly, presumably. And if it's really true that the apostles had a concept of a God as tripersonal, I would say that there is a Trinity doctrine there, even if it's not fully precise and fully worked out. However, let me add that this is not true. The New Testament writers do not show any sign that they have a concept of a triune God, but numerous factors reveal that they assumed the one true God to be the Father alone. On this, see Trinity's Podcast 189, or the published book chapter of the same name, which is The Unfinished Business of the Reformation, both of which are linked on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. So he comes very close to having it both ways, that yes, it is part of the contents of the New Testament, and no, it's not. But I think at the end of the day, his answer is no. He says that eventually church tradition settled on interpreting these books in a way such that there is a Trinity doctrine in them, but that's not the way they were understood in the first century when they were written. That's what I understand his position to be. So I think this question then doesn't apply to him. He doesn't have to answer question six. If this doctrine is in the Bible, how can one see this? He doesn't really think it is there. So if he doesn't answer six, what is he going to say about seven? If this doctrine is not in the Bible, why should Bible-oriented Protestants accept it? A Bible-oriented Protestant, if told how the Roman Catholic Church interprets some New Testament passage, if they're a good Protestant, will say, that's nice. But what did that passage actually mean to the author and to the people who initially received it? Because that's what I care about. I don't care about overlaying later ideas on these books. For me, it's these books which are authoritative because they come from Jesus' apostles or from people who ran in those circles of the apostles. Does Dr. Papandrea answer this question? It's not clear that he would even want to, right? He's a Roman Catholic. He's publishing this book in a Roman Catholic press called Liguri. Why should he answer a question like this? 
On page 109, he's in the middle of his exposition of the Nicene Creed, and he writes, The Greek word homoousios, consubstantial, actually caused a bit of controversy itself when it was used in the Creed. The problem was that the word is not found in Scripture. The Arians argued the word should not be used for that reason. However, the majority of the bishops finally accepted the word as the best way to interpret the biblical witness to the Trinity. In the end, it was the only term the bishops of the council could find that would describe the relationship of the Son to the Father without being vague enough also to allow an Arian interpretation. Well, that's not right, because the Arians could come up with an interpretation of it. But anyway, he continues, Thus, Scripture alone was not enough, since both the Arians and the Orthodox were reading the same Scriptures, but coming to very different interpretations. In the Creed, then, the bishops implicitly decided that the church had to go beyond scripture to interpret scripture. Therefore, the creed became part of our tradition, which helps us interpret scripture. So I don't think he answers this question. One might expect him to say that, hey, Protestants, you need church tradition to help you interpret the Bible. Otherwise, you'll never end up on the same page And so, really, you ought to realize that you need Catholic tradition and just become Catholic. But anyway, I don't think he addresses this question, nor would you expect him to, because he's a Roman Catholic writing, I assume, principally for other Roman Catholics. You know, maybe he would say, I don't think they should accept it, because on their own grounds, that we only want to accept things which are taught in Scripture, this actually isn't taught in Scripture. But he also says later in the book that if you don't believe in the Trinity, you're not a Christian. So then he would be declaring Protestants not Christians if he were to say that. I take it he wouldn't want to go that far. Catholicism, since Vatican II, tends to be more ecumenical than that. When the Trinity's podcast returns, does the book address our final three fundamental questions about the Trinity? Question 8 is, how does this doctrine relate to the so-called ecumenical councils? And I think he's clear about this. His answer is that it was taught at the 381 council, the so-called second ecumenical council in Constantinople. And he takes us through the whole Nicene Creed, the 325 Creed as revised at this 381 meeting. And he gives his whole interpretation of all the statements in that creed. So, no, it's not in the 325 Creed, as is in some popular lore, but yes, it is at least assumed or maybe implied by the statement from the 381 Council. Indeed, I think that's exactly the right answer. Question 9. Why have some Christians opposed any Trinity doctrine? Now, here I think his answers are fairly clear, but painfully inadequate and misinformed. Basically, he says, well, some people point out that the word Trinity isn't in the Bible. That is an objection, which some Unitarian Christians give, but it's a pretty shallow objection. The more thoughtful go a lot farther than that. They say, not only is the word not there, but the idea 
of a tripersonal God isn't there. And what is there is the idea or the claim that the one God just is the Father alone. The Father, as Jesus says in John 17, 3, is the only true God. He points out that some non-Trinitarians object that the Trinity was not taught until the 4th century, specifically until Nicaea. Well, the Nicaea part isn't right, but yes, it is a true point, in my view, that a triune God was not taught until the latter portion of the 4th century. Though he disagrees with that, he thinks it was being taught back in the 200s at least, if not in the 100s. He does bring up the Jehovah's Witnesses and has a suggestion about what to say when they knock on your door. Uh, Surprisingly, he gets their Christology quite wrong. He writes, the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus was a man who became a god. And then he complains about the translation of John 1.1. I'm not going to go there. That's not really their view. Their view is that he was a pre-existent, lesser divine being, in fact, an angel who became incarnate. So their view is similar to other early subordinationists, mainstream Christian views. Except for the angel part, of course. I think you shouldn't be impressed with his suggested answer to JWs that want to challenge you on your doorstep. His advice is, the best thing to say is that you are a Trinitarian Christian and you're happy with that. And he repeats a little bit more traditional Trinitarian language, which I guess is supposed to make them realize that you've already made up your mind. And then he says, at this point, they should move on to your next door neighbors. (laughs) Just talk until they get sick of it and say Trinitarian things. They'll know you don't want to, you don't want to hear about whatever their views are. If, however, you do find yourself engaged in a conversation about theology You might get the opportunity to use one of the analogies above to explain your Trinitarian beliefs to your new Unitarian slash Aryan friend. (laughs) Wait, what? (laughs) I thought they were all inadequate. Why would that be your go-to? I don't know. Why not just cut straight to the chase and say, Hey, friend, I know you're trying to sell me some sort of coherent account of the Father and the Son, but... My view is that the one God, the Trinity, is three beings and also is one being. Why not try that out and see how impressed they are with that? (laughs) Actually, I don't think that would be any better. But look, the uh, analogy stuff would just only confuse and mislead, right? Why would you want to do that to your new Unitarian slash Aryan friend? The tenth question is... Is this doctrine, as the Athanasian Creed asserts, something which one must believe in order to be saved? Oddly enough, maybe I missed it, but as far as I could find, this question was not answered in the book. Now, he does assert somewhere that you're not a Christian unless you believe in the Trinity, which would be very unfortunate that you'd have to believe an apparent contradiction to be a Christian. But anyway, making that point that you're not Christian unless you believe in the Trinity, that would just raise the question of, okay, but are any non-Christians saved? And on this, scholarly Roman Catholics have said many things. If you want to see an interesting summary of some of those things, check out my encyclopedia article in the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy called Theories of Religious Diversity. Okay, so I don't think question 10 is answered anywhere. All right, so what score am I going to give this book? Drumroll, please. Out of my 10 fundamental questions about the doctrine of the Trinity, really, as we heard, eight of them were applicable to this author and this book. And out of those eight questions, I think that Dr. Papandrea answered six out of them. 
So my score for the review is six out of eight, just in terms of how many fundamental questions are clearly enough addressed. This is a much higher score than our previous book. As I said, this is a very learned author, and he packs a lot into this book. I think what's most remarkable about it is the stab it makes at a historical narrative about the development of Christian doctrine. As I said, I think this is vulnerable. I think it won't stand up to a careful and close reading of these early mainstream theologians. But that's a topic for another podcast or seven. And I have noticed in this book that Dr. Papandrea tends to want to cram any sort of subordinationist into the adoptionist category, which I think is quite wrong-headed. In fact, at one point in the book, he even refers to the 4th century so-called Arians as adoptionists, and I've never seen any scholar do that before. In my view, adoptionism addresses the question of when Jesus became the Son of God, but it's another question just what it is for Jesus to be the Son of God, and you might hold a, quote, mere man Christology or a pre-existent divine person Christology and think that, you know, Jesus was just always destined to be the Son of God or that he became the Son of God the second he came into existence. There's nothing about a subordinationist view, per se, that requires one to locate the beginning of Jesus's sonship at, say, the baptism or some point like that. About the Trinity as an apparent contradiction, some would say, hey, that's just honest. Well, maybe so, but the problem is that apparent incoherence is strong evidence of falsehood. And whatever the component claims of the Trinity doctrine exactly are, how could we have so much reason for believing in those that we should still accept them all even when the whole set seems such that they couldn't all be true? I don't know. To characterize the Trinity as a middle way, as a moderate way, as a way that's not extreme, makes it all sound very sensible, but when you realize that it involves an apparent contradiction, it doesn't seem so sensible anymore. The more you focus on that, the more you start to think, wait a second, this can't be right, this can't be true. And this illustrates a general point. I think that positive Mysterians like to talk about the Trinity as involving paradox and difficulties and apparent contradictions, but typically they very rarely mention what those apparent contradictions are. Because as soon as you fasten on to them and decide to think about them, you at that very moment come to have strong evidence that not all of these claims are true. So I think positive Mysterianism kind of requires pushing off whatever these apparent contradictions are off to the back of your mind and really not thinking about them most of the time. I also think that the position in practice tends to involve oscillating back and forth between inconsistent views. The reason is that if the Trinity is an apparent contradiction, then your mind has nowhere to rest. And yet, right when you go to talk about God, you have to talk about God as a he or as a they. So which one is it going to be? This struck me about the end of the book, where the author is like, well, let's not be just purely theoretical. Let's include a little bit of devotional material. He includes a prayer to the Father, a prayer to the Son, and a prayer to the Holy Spirit, which would seem to be in keeping with those being three different ones, three different selves, three different eternal divine persons. And then on the last page, 
prayer to the Holy Trinity. Now, if the Trinity is an object of prayer, it's a who, a he, a someone who can be addressed, a someone who can listen and answer. So the first three prayers suggest that there are three beings there, three things, three objects of prayer, each with different prayers addressed to them. And then finally, the Trinity are treated as one thing, as one who. Honestly, it's hard for me to see that kind of double-mindedness as some kind of deep insight into the ultimate reality. Doesn't the book say that God is not the author of confusion? This week's thinking music has been the track Decade of Upsets, Remaster by Dr. Turtle. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. If you love the Trinity's podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook and help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinity's podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinities Podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.